Welcome to the latest edition of the Evolution Exchange Cybersecurity Podcast. Today's podcast will be focusing on cyber risk management, looking specifically at the present state of affairs and exploring what future states could look like. We're going to take particular focus on the renewable energy sector. So today I am fortunate enough to be joined by Pete Lund, VP of Product at Oxwa, Donovan Tindall, Director of OT Security at Denexus, Jose Ciara, CEO and founder at Denexus, and John Renzino, CEO and founder at Grid Security. So thank you, all of you, first of all, for, for joining me today. Really looking forward to this conversation. Um, John, um, so if you could start us off, it would be great if we could work around the room with some introductions. So would you start us off with an introduction to yourself um, and, and what you're doing at the moment? Yeah, thank you, Dave. Great to have me here. Um, so... I'm John Franzino, founder and CEO of Grid Security, and we focus 100% on performing network operations and managed security services for renewable generators and control centers. In a past life, I focused more on uh, the SIP consulting side, so understand the regulatory framework, how that ties into operations, and then I've had the pleasure of having to live with my own cyber policies and, and programs as a managed service provider. Um, so gained a lot of hands-on experience in terms of what may sound nice on paper in theory, and then how it actually works in practice in the field. Perfect. And over to yourself, Pete, would you would you give us a bit of an introduction? Sure, thanks, Dave. And again, thanks for having me. Uh, so Pete Lund, VP of OT Security Products here at OpsWAT. We've got a very comprehensive suite covering everything from you know visibility to firewalls to removable media security. I've been focused on industrial cybersecurity products for the past decade. Uh, Kind of cut my teeth at Industrial Defender, where we had one of the very early visibility tools, and uh, happy to be with this panel here today. Perfect. Over to yourself, Donovan. Yes, my name Donovan Tyndall. Um, started my career actually one of the early uh, individuals in the consulting side in industrial IT as far back as to year two thousand with Matricon. Uh, we built up a cybersecurity consulting practice that was later acquired by Honeywell. So for seventeen years, I was in the facilities doing assessments and design and upgrades and uh, in any kind of connecting business networks with control networks. And then for the last five years, kind of took a leadership role there. Um, now I'm over at Denexus and I lead the data team that's all about bringing data about the control system to automate that cybersecurity assessment and bring it into the models. Right. And last but certainly not least, Jose. Hey, thank you, Dave. Hey. Thank you for having me here. I'm Jose Sierra, and the CEO and founder of uh, the Nexus. Uh, my background is in radio and energy, uh, believe it or not. Uh, uh, so somehow I turned my cybersecurity issues when I was an asset owner and operator into a business opportunity at the Nexus, where we have developed a data analytics platform to quantify uh, and manage and mitigate cyber risk in, in industrial environments, including the renewable energy sector. Perfect. And thank you again, everyone. And with introductions out of the way, John, can you, I guess, to kick us off, provide us with a bit of context, why are we focusing, focusing specifically on the renewable sector? What are the change we're seeing and um, why they're occurring, occurring? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say it's because the renewable energy sector is the first digital native industrial control sector, right? Um, when we look back to traditional utilities, vertically integrated utilities, you know, they, they own the control center, they own the private lease lines and MPLS networks from control center to generation asset. 
the risk profile, the attack surface um, was relatively constrained. You know, we used to talk about air-gapped networks, and we used to be able to say that with only a half-kidding face. Um, now you can't even say it without laughing because it doesn't exist in, in this industry segment anymore because it's a digital native, digital first, um, cloud adoption uh, is here. Trains already left the station. So we look at uh, a typical a renewable energy generator. Um, you know, when we're saying renewable energy, we're really talking inverter-based resources. So wind, solar, and now battery storage um, primarily. They have open internet ISP circuits um, that, and they do the monitoring control over the internet. They have cloud services involved. And the other major change um, is the number of entities and the number of parties involved in a single site. You know, again, going back to a vertically integrated utility, they own the whole stack. Um, there was essentially one, one party uh, that had responsibility for all management, operational, cyber, et cetera. Uh, look at a typical renewable facility today, and you have at least dozen entities that have some role and responsibility in the long-term operations of that facility. That means essentially it does new network connections, right? And so, um, again, just the, the sheer amount of parties, how distributed it is geographically, um, you know, hopefully one point we'll get to is our model for how we regulate the uh, electric grid here in the U.S. is arguably being broken in real time by how renewables are coming online, uh, particularly at the distribution level, um, but also at the transmission level. You know, distribution was regulated by geographic state borders. Um, there's a lot of movement right now talking about cyber at a state level policy from the, the PUCs where, you know, people are involved or are scared about that because how does a renewable developer that operates in 50 states have 50 different cybersecurity programs that are effective uh, and efficient? Um, it's going to be close to impossible. So many new parties involved, entities that were never participating in the electric grid, like Google uh, providing demand response to Nest and Tesla and vehicle to grid charging and then network connections everywhere is really, from my standpoint, why we have so much change and how we need to think about regulation and risk management in this industry compared to 10 years ago. Hey, John, when cyber comes up with all those parties, do they all kind of run to the corners of the room and point fingers or is there someone in there who actually is kind of taking the forefront in your in your mind well it depends on um what actually happens in practice in real time when a stressful situation arises right um and what is actually on paper where the buck stops at the end of the day um you know when you look at NERC regulation if you have a, a registered uh, facility NERC doesn't honor or look at third-party contracts so from a compliance standpoint that buck stops with the registered generator owner at the, the uh, generation facility and at the registered generator operator um, at the control center level. In practice, it's obviously a lot messier than that, as you're alluding to, for sure. Yeah. And now we're getting into other reporting regulations, right? There's overlap from incident response reporting. Huge problem right now. Uh, which direction do you, uh, what obligations do I have, both to regulators um, and entities like CISA the, and the DOE, but then also my counterparties, right? We have all these contractual relationships involved in a single site. Who, where's my web of reporting? And that's something people are struggling with uh, as we speak. So the increase in um, use of renewables and naturally the increase in digitalization, no doubt has its uses. But I guess from an asset owner's perspective, Jose, can you kind of talk us through why is or why should cybersecurity be such concern? Um, 
for asset owners? Yeah, of course. Uh, we can look at this probably in two different ways. Uh, one way is protecting the downside of not having a proper cybersecurity posture or cybersecurity management program in place, and uh, also looking at the upside of having uh, uh, one uh, good program in place. Uh, evidently, in this type of physical assets, uh, safety, availability, and reliability is a big theme. Uh, uh, you need to you need to operate safely, and uh, you need to uh, have high uh, availability because that is the source of revenues to sustain the business. And uh, and uh, reliability is also a big theme. Um, also, compliance uh, is a big uh, motivation for the owners of these assets. For better or worse, uh, cybersecurity risk management decisions are sometimes made in compliance basis, uh, and especially in these sectors of activity that are uh, heavily uh, regulated. So having or not having a proper cybersecurity management program in place will impact all of those aspects, your compliance risk, your availability risk, your reliability, predictability, uh, and, uh, and also safety. Uh, safety concerns that could result on, on significant liabilities. But now let's look at the other side, which is as a business enabler. Uh, uh, cybersecurity risk in this type of facilities most of the times takes the form of some operational risk that impacts revenues or cash flows. Uh, so that is a risk that is identified uh, more and more every day by investors uh, and uh, lenders, financiers of those type of activities that are capital intensive. So, so having a proper cybersecurity management program in place uh, should be looked, in my opinion, as a business enabler. It may give you access to capital that otherwise you don't have access to, or cheaper capital that makes your value proposition more competitive compared to the peers that are not paying attention to this problem. Uh, and uh, when I say management, I mean not only, let's say, physical management of the risk, uh, the type of thing that John Francino and others uh, do in the space, but also financial management of the risk. Uh, at some point, the, there is no financial justification to keep investing on that tail risk, but the tail risk still exists. And that, that is the type of risk that you want to offload from your balance sheet and usually put it somewhere else. And that somewhere else usually should be the insurance industry. Uh, so, so. Again, this is looking at the upside of having a proper uh, cybersecurity management program in place, which in my opinion is a business enabler for the activity that gives you access to capital or in better conditions that otherwise you wouldn't have access to. Perfect. Yeah, I mean, Jose, to that point, uh, security, I always tell my team, uh, no, the security is never the end goal, right? Um, Security is enabler. It is there to support available, reliable, and safe operations, and that's it. And to your point on looking at financial risk, um, I think, you know, Tenexus is obviously at the forefront of this effort. Um, it's difficult one to quantify cyber risk that really hasn't been done well yet uh, before. Because let's be honest, to date, most uh, entities are making cyber control decisions based on the fact for two reasons. They're either forced to do so through requirements and standards, or they were told to do so as a best practice and a good idea. That's about the level of rigor we have when applying cybersecurity programs to date, from my perspective. One thing that's come up on a couple of occasions now is, you know, safety, availability, and reliability. Now, with the title of this podcast, or, you know, the aim of it focusing specifically at cyber risk management, I think it would be quite useful for 
the listeners who may or may not kind of already know the differences between OT and cybersecurity. From my understanding, with, with IT, it's more kind of confidentiality and integrity of data that we're concerned with. That's different to OT. Will Would someone be kind of happy to give us a bit of an insight as to those differences and why obviously we're we're specifically more kind of concerned with safety, availability, reliability here? I'll take a crack at it. This is Donovan. Um, with with you know traditional IT or information systems, it it is largely about information protection, confidentiality, and you know controlling that information. Now they do drive major services like financial and banking and retail and such. So you know you know the movement of that money. But when you move into the OT environment, you have something physical that you're operating, right? Like an automobile has a computer, and there's a computer that's assisting with braking or um, lane control, like you know, just even a, a simple system like that. Um, you know, you have it's computer aided, and when you have a moving machine or a wind turbine or a pipeline, and it is in production, you can't just uh, the constraints you're you're constrained in being able to assess it, patch it, improve it, uh, upgrade it, because if it isn't broken, you don't want to fix it. It's almost like, you know, there's, um, if you were in an automobile and you're going down the highway and your automobile vendor wanted to run a patch while you're driving down the highway, you would think that's blasphemy. That's impossible. You can't do that. I'm in the middle of driving this. Well, the same analogy applies when you're running a pipeline or a wind turbine. It's like, why are you patching this right now? We're running like this has to wait. And right now, this is not an opportune time. So you have this added constraint that you can't do a lot of the cybersecurity things you want to do because operation is number one. And number two, um, there's a desire to run this infrastructure as long as possible, whether it's the control system, the networks, whatever. And so the longer you run it, you bear with it this technical debt that it's either more vulnerable um, it has exposures. It wasn't designed for the connectivity that we're putting at it today. So you combine all that together with a an external threat landscape that's getting smarter and more capable at disrupting these systems. And then meanwhile, you're constrained in being able to fix it. And so, you know, a lot of the risk management is about balancing that is, you know, I it, it doesn't make sense to upgrade the control system solely for cybersecurity's sake. What can we do that's a good balance that allows me to reduce that risk while still not having to rip and replace the entire control system? Perfect. Uh, that, thank you for that. And I guess back to back to Jose's point, then it's I guess it's quite interesting because with these systems, you can't afford to have any sort of downtime. You can't you can't afford or logistically just turn things off to, as you said, patch. Um, and also, if there is downtime or if there are kind of any issues, there is actually a real kind of threat to life in, in many instances with, you know, operational technology. Those same risks don't really apply so much on the IT side of the fence, do they? No, other than maybe if there's a lot of money lost, somebody's kind of in trouble. <laughs> but, you know, like yeah. you don't have that health, uh, safety or environmental type consequence, you know, because you don't have a moving physical object or kinetic energy, et cetera, that, you know, could be released. Yeah, there's a fantastic quote out there, and I forget who gets credit for it, but you can't restore uh, human life from backup, right? You can restore your computer, you get another phone, human life is something you can't really restore, at least not today. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a topic for another, for a future uh, future podcast, whether that's uh, something that's feasible, but I think for now it's probably probably worth uh, kind of on the side of caution. Um, but Donovan, stay with you for a second then. So where do businesses start then? If 
you know, they are looking to improve their AG cybersecurity. You know, where, what's the starting point for them? Um, it's always an assessment, right? Whether you're you're looking to renovate or buy a home or something or you know, even buying a car, the first thing you do is you want it inspected and you want to assess. You want to know what are you what are you dealing with? Are is the pro where are the weak spots in the program? Is it good enough? And then if there are issues, where are the areas to prioritize? So um, most organizations, you know, they tr you know when they first get started into cybersecurity, they'll bring in a consultant, um, and it's a lot of uh, you know bring in experts that might come in uh, every couple of years to deliver a report that effectively tells them, here are your top risks. We recommend uh, these are the priorities, and then the owner of that risk makes a decision on either to accept um, what they are, negotiate the priority. And then effectively assign budget to go ahead and spend money on those. Um, the challenge with that is, is that it's manual and it takes time, and it, you know, it, it the, by you know, it, it might take two months from the start of a an ass consulting assessment project until the end, until you have your results. So you kind of work between these assessment cycles and these sprints of what to improve, which might be one or two years, which is typically how. Uh, organizations get started. And so could you talk us through the the process then of, of conducting one of these assessments? Um, first, I'll talk about kind of the, the old way and it's kind of where, where we're going. Um, back in the early 2000s, it's, you know, we um, determined the scope of the environment. From that, it would really dictate the amount of time that would be needed to collect the data manually from all of the computers using scripts, physical inspection, following tracing cables, characterizing the environment to really discover what is out there. And there's a lot of mystery, right? And at the beginning, they'll say, okay, we think there's about 50 cyber assets. And you get on site and you discover 20, 30 more because behind there might be an air gap network or just a little switch. And you have this um, heat trace system or environmental monitoring, um, et cetera. So where we're going is trying to automate this, automate the collection, automate the um analysis and reporting so that we can have the data more frequently and that's really where we're going and it's this concept of indicators to have a measurement of your cybersecurity program you know today and next week and how are we doing and it leads into you know kpis um and you know um a measurement of the cybersecurity program instead of being every couple of years it could be weekly right and so that's generally where cybersecurity is going and then to be able to use that data and this accumulation of data about the cybersecurity program. Yeah, and Don, and I, I would say I agree definitely with your response, but would say that that's working under the assumption that the entity knows what to assess against or has something to assess against, right? When we have compliance, right? That's one of the good things about compliance. Those are, you know, the key outcomes and objectives we can assess directly against, you know, till the advent of quantification tools like Denexus, and we can actually put things in financial terms that we can all cohesively assess against. There's this gap, right? Because a lot of entities, okay, I meet my bare bone compliance. If I have any, um, some don't, right? So what are they assessing against? Obviously, there's standards and frameworks out there, voluntary ones that can be adopted, but it's really information overload, especially for a lot of these renewable asset owners. Where do I start? What do I measure against? How do I know what's right for me? 
And so, you know, as an easy starting point, I kind of always turn them back to what Jose was saying in the beginning is let's look at controls, cybersecurity, quote unquote, controls that have a direct benefit um, on your operational availability, right? Where can we implement controls that, yeah, we also know this is a best practice and NIST, et cetera, but I can see direct operational benefit from those controls well before I can measure, did that control help prevent a ransomware attack that did or didn't happen, right? Um, So I think it's going back to that operational tie until that nut of tying it to financials can be cracked. And then everyone up the chain from the boardroom down can now finally start talking about cyber risk management using the same language. Because right now we have people talking about in complicated uh, frameworks that the board doesn't understand, technology, right? And so we have this language and this communication barrier until we can all talk in financial terms. Yeah. Confident about those financial terms. And oftentimes I'll put it back to folks in terms of business continuity, right? If you're, you know, a solar generator, what happens if the inverters go down? Whether it's a cyber sack, whether it's a weather issue, it's a maintenance issue. Okay, they're down. So how much does that cost you per minute per day? And what's your plan to get it back online if it's broken, if it's hacked, if it's ransomware? What are you going to do when that happens, right? And those sort of tabletop exercises, they call them, kind of transcend all standards and uh, other kind of suggestions because it's, you know, impacting business, right? Much like Colonial Pipeline, they had to shut down the pipeline because they didn't have a good continuity plan for billing, right? It was, billing was down. Well, we can't pump oil if we can't bill. So what do you do, right? Those are the exercises where before you go running off and buying, you know, a bunch of fancy tools, you have to take a hard look at your business yourself and determine, you know, what are your weak points and what are you going to do when they go down? Maybe it doesn't make sense to put in a bunch of firewalls when you should maybe have a bunch more spares for a critical part. That's something that you can't get back online for six months just because of where we're at with supply chain, right? So it's kind of have to think through those hard scenarios. And oftentimes the OT guys are some of the best to do it because they understand all the interdependencies of, you know, power flows here and then it splits there and it reconnects there and frequency matches there. And they, they can kind of do those risk assessments. And that's where an outside consultant doesn't always have the best understanding of your business. They know the, the complied standards. They know what the government wants to see, but they might not know what practically needs to be done and in an emergency. Another way to look at this and always coming from my business view of the problem, um, uh, I cannot agree more with uh, John's statement that uh, you need something to compare yourself against as the starting point. Uh, Another way to look at that uh, starting point or comparison is how my peers are doing in my industry. Am I overdoing or underdoing compared to what my peers or competitors are doing? Uh, So that creates another baseline uh, uh, assessment to keep comparing you against. Uh, and that is something that uh, executives, boards constantly uh, look at and uh, want to use as another reference point. Am I overdoing or underdoing compared to what the rest of my industry is doing in this field? So again, constantly looking for that uh, reference point to take as the as the starting point of baseline to, mo- to measure how you are doing against. Perfect. So from my understanding, obviously, please correct me if I'm wrong, like through automation, as Donovan's kind of suggested here, you know, we can decrease the time 
to get these assessments done from kind of the, the roughly two month timeframe Donovan suggested. Through automation as well, we've not kind of got the bias of the consultants not understanding the business needs. You're actually getting a complete entire picture of the risk. Um, but also you've got a reference point. If you're using this tool, you maybe you can kind of compare your score with other companies. Hopefully that could kind of provide you with, you know, a better reference. Have I have I summed that up? Have I, have I got a good idea or? Yeah, I, th- I think you got it. I think maybe it was one clarifying point is, you know, Don, correct me if I'm, you were thinking differently, but really the, the, the two month, just put a consulting cost aside, right? It's not the length of the assessment, how much effort goes into it. Obviously, the more we can be efficient, streamline it, the better. That's not really the crux of the problem. It's mm-hmm. the snapshot in time problem, right? Because everyone that is involved in cyber risk management knows that this risk tends to drift more quickly than other business risks that we have to manage right so you know this goes to the classic problem everyone's dealing on cyber insurance right both sides of the table know it's a broken process right now with a once a year you know excel sheet static questionnaire that you're relying on human input back to bias right there's a lot of bias depending on who answers that questionnaire um, in terms of how truthful or accurately are they answering it and then it's a snapshot in time and then by you know day one, it's we know it's probably pretty um, a poor representation of the actual risk present at that facility. But that's yeah. as we've done so far. So everyone knows it's broken. And, you know, folks like Jose and Denexus and others are working to how do we fix it? It's broken. Yeah, I always like to say that by the time the report that took two months to be put together is print out, it's already obsolete. So let's go exactly. back to square one and do it again. Right, okay, so that. Is- Thank you. Definitely kind of deep my understanding of this. The problem isn't necessarily so much the, the, the length of time you may be paying a consultancy. It's more a case of how relevant is this information and what are we kind of securing or mitigating against? You might have missed a whole host of risks. So um, hopefully I've got a bit of a clear understanding now, so I appreciate that. Um, and I guess, Pete, we can kind of come to you for this one. What are you seeing as the products that are commonly being used? So companies now, we've gone from a point of the, the asset owners acknowledging that they're they need to in, in, include their risk. Donovan's obviously eloquently kind of spoken us through the risk um, assessment process. What are the products out there? Yeah, so a lot of folks are starting to use visibility solutions as sort of a uh, replacement for that assessment. It can definitely speed up and uh, give you that clearer picture in more real time than an assessment. So it's telling you, you know, at a high level what physical cyber assets you have. And from there, those solutions start to merge into understanding vulnerabilities. And even some of them have some risk capabilities built in where they'll say, okay, I see that this is an older unpatched asset. It happens to have these three vulnerabilities against it. Oh, and by the way, it's using, you know, an insert insecure protocol and it's connecting to endpoints that it shouldn't. I'm going to go give this, you know, a, an eight out of 10 because it's showing some behaviors that are, uh, potentially bad, either it's versus learned or versus some policy you may have loaded in. Uh, but the tools are still very much imperfect. They need a lot of human, uh, we'll say generation or translation of that data uh, because really no two environments are the same. As John mentioned, you have a lot of different stakeholders and from site to site, from generation type to generation type, you've got different vendors and different best practices, and it's extremely hard to get all that into you know, a tool, even with using some of that like advanced machine learning capability. So what I like to kind of tell folks is before you go and make, you know, a large investment in tools, look at 
well, you have already, right? Most folks have already invested in some form of cybersecurity tools, usually a dozen or more. You likely have some of that inventory and risk information uh, at your fingertips already. You can mine it for data, uh, kind of use what you have and really understand your gaps and tools before you go out and start to invest in visibility and vulnerability because you do that. The board pays for that large investment. Let's say you go and spend a million bucks on visibility. Well, did you do anything to reduce your risk? Well, not really. You know where your risks are. You might be able to react to them quicker or get more real time with them, but you haven't done anything to help with, you know, the actual business continuity problem when something goes down, right? You might have a better, but have better records and better uh, information that you don't have to go back to the spreadsheets and look up, but you're still not necessarily uh, any more secure than when you started. And that's kind of the big, the big gap in the market. Um, the nice part about renewables, as John mentioned, they are they are digital, so they do have much more cybersecurity things built in, right? They're assumed to be connecting across public networks to the cloud. They're they're not hiding behind an air gap, and they have a lot of those smarts built in, which is nice. So you mentioned that there is a difference in the products that are out there. So these are tools that are providing visibility of you know different kind of OT uh, assets. Are companies aware of the different capabilities or do you think there's an issue maybe where companies, as you've mentioned, do maybe just pour in millions and millions or pour in loads of money and try and fix a problem by buying a solution, but they don't actually know what the solution's providing? Yeah, so it's re a really interesting market right now for visibility. So it was an extremely hot market for, uh, say, five or six years, and it continues to be. Uh, but the visibility solutions are starting to get uh, a bit over-marketed and long in the tooth. So they're kind of going out there saying that, oh, you put in this amazing visibility tool and it's going to solve all your problems, right? But we're finding that it's really just overwhelming people with more noise and it's not necessarily always uh, helping you, right? You may be chasing uh, 100 low priority vulnerabilities based on your environment when you could be spending those cycles you know, shoring up something around business continuity or looking at something else that would actually give you protective controls, you know, putting in uh, better secure about access for dealing with uh, contractors or putting in, you know, secure removable media solutions because, you know, people are just showing up and plugging in, uh, you know, at random. So it's, you really kind of have to look at your investment and the output of it. And we have to be real realistic about what visibility can do for you. Um, definitely great on the automated data collection side, but it's the actions that you take from a people and process standpoint and measurement standpoint, of course, uh, is really what kind of changes the, the game. And we'll yeah, Pete, to that point, I think, you know, if you, you know, the technology adoption curve, I would argue we're, we're probably somewhere between the, the peak of, uh, inflative expectations and trough of disillusionment when it comes yeah. to this type of technology, I think most are turning the corner now where they realize. I can't just buy a tool or tools and now my problem is gone and my risk is managed. Um, you know, there obviously there, there's the human care and feeding element that needs to happen with every tool that you mentioned. And I think the other complicating factor, back to your question, Dave, of like, do companies know what they can leverage and go use? I think Pete's right. They probably already have a lot that um, they can leverage further that they may not realize. And I think the answer to your question, Dave, is no, they don't because there is so much overlap between different tools right now, really figuring out where those lines are drawn. What can I do with one tool versus another? 
Where do I have the overlap? How do I make the decision? Is it right to use a special purpose tool for this one domain area? Or do I just wrap it into an existing more holistic solution I have that does it, but maybe doesn't do it as well? But I get the benefit of uh, everyone's chasing the single pane of glass, right? So these are all the, the balancing acts that asset owners and service providers need to make when talking about tool selection. It's, let me just say, it's like close to a full-time job of mine right now. Um, just figuring out what capabilities are out there and how do we put the pieces together for our world and our customers' environments most effectively. Sure, perfect. And so with all these visibility tools out there now, you're getting a lot of information or noise as to, you know, what the risks are that are out there. Jose, from a an asset owner perspective, how can security teams or security kind of professionals take this risk and translate it you know, to executives within an organization in a way that they're going to understand and, you know, talk their language. Yeah, let me begin sharing an anecdote uh, that, that is coming to mind as Pete uh, was talking about uh, these visibility tools. So e everything begins with having a proper visibility of the problem that you're trying to solve. And uh, these telemetry tools are getting better at providing that uh, visibility and God bless them because without that visibility, some of us couldn't do our job. But but what do you do with that visibility? And that is the anecdote. Uh, I was a pioneer uh, deploying some of those telemetry tools in my power generation environments back in the days uh, from one of the leaders in the space currently. And I remember as it was yesterday, the day my CTO took me to the control room to show me that beautiful piece of technology that he had deployed in our environments and uh, we saw the screen full of vulnerabilities and my initial reaction was uh, what do we do with this information what do we do with this because as an executive vulnerabilities may not matter at all so so you need to first speak the language of the people that makes risk management decisions risk management decisions shouldn't be made in my opinion uh, based on vulnerabilities. They shouldn't be made based on compliance programs. They should be made on risk uh, 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 on, on risk basis. And not only on cyber risk basis, but on business risk uh, basis, because those of us working on cyber 24-7 tend to believe or think that cyber is the most important problem on earth and that companies should be focusing all their energies on this cyber risk. And that most of the times is actually not the case. Uh, these enterprises are complex enterprises, they have many other risks to handle, and you need to not only provide the decision makers with the information they need in the language that they speak, but in the way that they can contextualize that risk with many other enterprise-level risks that they are uh, uh, tasked to, to, to manage. Another relevant point is that risk is not a bad word. Uh, risk is actually a really nice word. Uh, uh, enterprises love risk. They don't hate risk. So, so this position that sometimes the industry takes that you need to reduce risk at any cost because risk is bad is actually a flaw statement. Risk is great. Uh, that's how people make money, taking risks. That's how enterprises make money, take a managing complex risks. What is bad is the risk that you do, do not understand or the risk that you do not have uh, visibility about. And uh, the last thing I would say on how cyber practitioners can communicate with uh, uh, business leaders and vice versa 
is by creating a plain level field, a common language that they can use to talk about the same underlying problem, because no matter how you talk about the problem, the problem is a factual problem that is there. So you need a common language. And in our opinion, common language is data. Data, let the data speak. The data will tell everybody what is relevant and what is not, what is priority and what is not, uh, even more if it is factual data and not good uh, faith made up data, uh, answering lengthy questionnaires with a subjective uh, information. Uh, let the data speak and let's present the data to the different constituencies in the language that they understand. And uh, I also like to say that this is a community risk that requires a community problem inside and outside the companies. So you need to understand the sensitivities of the different constituencies and what risk sits or is managed by the different stakeholders in that lengthy risk uh, management and risk transfer chain. So data, common language, and uh, contextualizing the risk with other risks that the companies are uh, forced to manage and uh, that they love managing because, again, they like risk. Contrary to the common understanding that risk is bad, risk is great. <laughs> Perfect. And I think that's probably naturally going to be a bit of a kind of paradigm shift or a complete different focus away from security people. Obviously, they wanted to reduce risk as much as possible. So maybe it's the first hurdle for them is to sort of understand when you're talking to these executive people that might hold the purse string that aren't security people. It's about risk tolerance. You know, their goal on the day-to-day basis is keep risk as low as possible. Some risk is acceptable, obviously, as, as you've mentioned there. And so I guess on the other side of uh, of the camp, John, if you could kind of give us a bit of an insight from the cybersecurity or the security professional perspective, how do you see um, the justification for the need for cybersecurity evolving over time? And how can people go about that? Well, I'll just share my, my personal experience with uh, hopefully highlights a small piece of the world. Um, you know, five years ago, I would say in this industry segment, most action taken in the cybersecurity space was driven by compliance requirements, right? They were forced and told to do something. Fast forward to today, um, and this risk is being talked about at the board level. So now there's a top down, you know, in, in a positive, healthy way, right? Like Jose saying is like, okay, we understand this risk is here. How do we get visibility to the risk at the board level? And how do we make informed business decisions? I think you hit it on your head in your summary where a lot of this talking past each other from the practitioner level, you know, up to the executive level happens because the practitioner all too often wants to try to do their best, right? Do a great job that they've uh, been put in charge of, of reducing risk close to zero. When that is so misaligned with the actual business goals, we, we want this risk to be managed, right? And that means something different for every organization based on their risk tolerance, as Jose. Um, so again, fast forward today, uh, this is now at the you know a business risk management um, discussion. So I've seen you know clients go from just being driven by compliance, um, then going into the second phase where they see the operational benefit, right? It's these cyber controls are driven by operational. Um, risk management. You know, that, like most entrepreneurs, I was wrong with my business plan on day one five years ago because I thought I was going to be a managed security service provider. Day one, I learned that that did not speak to the value proposition of most of my asset owners at that time. What spoke to them, the language they understood, 
was operational risk management. You know, this idea of a ransomware attack was far-fetched. It still relatively is to most. But I could talk to them about the need to have a backup and disaster recovery plan because they don't need to have backups um, to just recover from a ransomware attack, right? These facilities are in West Texas. There's lots of dust. They get that. They see the dust. They know they have hardware failures and they can see how they benefit from managing backups you know, systematically. And then fast forward today, um, insurance is driving a lot of the next round of taking action by entities. They're out there. They're getting hit with their annual uh, policy renewals and insurance questions. And you know, now today, you answered no to one or, or two of those key control questions. You can become uninsurable very quickly. Um, and they see their premiums going up and their coverage going down simultaneously. And so they're scrambling to figure, how do we find an acceptable way to manage and transfer this risk? And what do we need to do to get back on the right foot? And also building on that, as we're you know looking at how cyber security justification is t- changing over time, is it's going to be more data-driven. Data about the security program coming in more frequently, data about safeguards and risks and external threats and being able to analyze that and report on it in a very timely and, you know, agile basis, not the traditional security assessment, but to have that data coming in uh, near real time. And if we can automate the collection, the analysis, the benefits, you know, to the industry, right, you know, an asset owner, they're, they're going to have a more accurate measure of each of their facilities so they can benchmark them against each other, which ones are doing better than another. And I'm not saying like who has more vulnerabilities or who has more log events. It's real things like um, who is driving down vulnerability or who is, um, you know, having malware detections and like, like real indicators that would either be risk or safeguards in place or they're performing cybersecurity actions. Um, and then they can benchmark, and that's some of the data that we're we're gathering at Denexus is, you know, benchmarking against industry peers and gathering this up. And how do I compare against others in my in my peer group, which is what people are really lacking. They don't know if they're good or bad. Um, for providers to be able to show value, either supporting their customer, they get to that renewal period, and saying, okay, we helped, you know, reduce some of your technical debt some of your vulnerabilities, we improve these safeguards over time. And instead of it being, um, you know, just, you know, we, we've we've invested, in the, it, we're using cybersecurity indicators and KPIs that are showing this improvement. And then also that data, there's the, the in underwriters wanting to see the same data and looking at their portfolios and saying, is this a good uh, risk pool? Uh, is this a strong cybersecurity program or a weak one? And what does that mean to me? And that's really where, um, you know, the, remember that this foundation is data versus just human-filled questionnaires and to be able to have more timely and more accurate information and just have less bias in that. Perfect. And it sounds like this data also kind of helps bridge the gap then or overcome language barriers between the security folk and the kind of executives who might ultimately hold the purse strings, be it asset owners or be I don't know, finance teams, whoever's in kind of control of the, the budget, I guess security guys understand intrinsically what the data actually means, but from a an executive level, those numbers is what kind of the business is run off. So I guess that's quite an important thing as well. Um, so obviously now we 
understand the risk and hopefully are better able to kind of communicate the risk. In terms of actually reducing the risk, Pete, can you give us a bit of an insight as to, you know, what solutions are out there for these organizations to, yeah, get that risk down? Yeah, I can certainly t- touch on that. So it's it's funny when you boil down, you know, all these different risk vectors, uh, it generally goes back to people, right? People and process. And that's usually the first thing that if you're going to make any investment, uh, shore those things up. But usually those risk and threats are going to come, you know, they're going to walk through your front door in the form of, you know, a tainted uh, laptop, someone, a phone, portable media, something is going to find its way in just like, you know, the original Stuxnet compromises, which was, you know, old school USB, right? And then on the other side, you've got things like the network, right? The network is your other public facing uh, threat vector and something is going to slip past a firewall. Someone's going to leverage you know, a vulnerability and both of those things, there's some great solutions out there. So when you've got, you know, say transient assets coming in and out of your environment, you need to make sure you you scan them for threats, check them for uh, vulnerabilities, and then make sure at the same time that when those devices uh, are leaving your facility, that they don't include any of your intellectual property, right? So that's kind of the whole uh, protecting, not just what you're doing, but maybe you've got a fairly unique deployment where you found higher efficiency on your inverters or your turbines and you've got some secret sauce built into your your ladder logic and you don't want that to escape. And then on the kind of the network side, of course, visibility helps, you know, see the threats and ultimately quickly respond to the bad guys uh, entering that environment. But let's make sure that we're channeling all the access to that environment through an approved channel, like a secure remote access solution, something that's going to you know, use MFA, something that's going to log what this session uh, was about. Someone that's going to, something that's going to disconnect the session when, you know, you see the user attempting to access a resource that they shouldn't be, right? Um, we're all talking about zero trust as the latest buzzword. And ultimately, those are some of the things you can do to get yourself closer to, you know, zero trust in these, you know, environments that really didn't have that in mind, right? We're still a little bit off the the pace of IT, even in the renewable space, you know, when you can walk up to a, a device and, you know, physically manipulate it, well, there's, it's really hard to come up with a zero trust strategy when there's just exposed, you know, buttons on there. So try to minimize the attack path for, you know, those adversaries and then minimize, uh, that same attack path for, uh, and people and users who are maybe doing it uh, mistakenly. Right. And that's the other vector is just humans making mistakes. Uh, it doesn't always come from a cyber threat. Like we finally learned that old smart water was just uh, mistakes and confusions and not actually bad guys manipulating, you know, the, the chemical levels. And it took us, you know, months to figure it out. I think a couple visibility tools and some better remote access would have made it pretty clear where the, uh, where the, where that access was coming from. Right. Sure. So yeah, obviously installing solutions is, is kind of one route of reducing risks. John, from your perspective, kind of it, a managed managed services presumably is another option. Can you talk us through that a bit? Yeah, I mean, um, you know, none of this, as we've hopefully are illuminated so far, isn't easy, right? By the time you're done with figuring out technology selections, the the training of, of personnel to manage that technology, make decisions in the context of business. Um, so, I mean, I, a lot of organizations are struggling, you know, with with the cost, uh, the complexity, and the hiring for doing these functions internally. And I think when you look out, zoom outside the renewable industry and look at the 
you know, broader MSP and MSSP market, you kind of see that trend um, has been happening for the last few years where look back five, 10 years ago, the large, you know, uh, corporations were like, oh, we in-house this, we, we can always in-house everything, right? They stand out their security teams, their SOTs. And now you're starting to see a lot of those big corporations go back the other direction and divesting in the in-house capabilities. You know, they still have maybe a core in-house team to manage and monitor what additional third-party vendors are doing for them, but they're figuring out how they can efficiently and effectively outsource these, you know, very skilled and focused functions that maybe don't make the most sense. Um, you know, it's not a core. Nobody's doing security for security, right? Unless you're an MSSP. Uh, but still, my goal as a third-party service provider isn't security at the end of the day. It's back to supporting and enabling the business. Um, so, you know, that business, the core, our customers, their core business objective and function is not cybersecurity, right? This is just another thing they need to figure out along the way to accomplish the core objective. So a lot of times it makes out, you know, sense to outsource very specialized function. And yes, that's one of them. Yeah. You think about it. If you have, you know, a dollar to spend, are you going to spend that dollar training up an internal resource who could be ultimately placed against, you know, production and generating dollars for your company? Are you going to, you know, basically have someone who isn't an expert that you're trying to train to be an expert, or you could spend that dollar uh, hiring an expert and getting, you know, a high quality SLA and high quality product and save your experts for, you know, the industrial process or whatever, uh, internal things are a priority for you. Right? It's a reason why we bring our cars to mechanics and, and don't, uh, don't change our brakes ourselves. I could certainly do it. It would take me all day long. I'd probably have some bumps and bruises and, uh, you know, sp spend a lot more in, in time than I saved in money. Right. Sure. We've looked at, so we've looked now at installing solutions to reduce risk and we looked at managed services as another option i know we kind of touched on briefly you know building the in-house capability which i think you know i guess would be fantastic but but naturally there's going to be you know there's going to be a massive lag there are there any other kind of options companies can use to to reduce their risk i think looking taking a hard look at your supply chain is becoming more and more important right that is the kind of the newest threat vector that we're talking about you know new not necessarily new and speaking about like solar winds but if you look at john's scenario of 12 different vendors all coming in with different pieces of hardware and software that's the new vector that attackers are seeing as being much easier right because your your vendor ultimately doesn't care about your business as much as you and they are there they might you know cut a corner here they might leave access on uh it's becoming the new kind of threat. And as we harden other parts of the environment, that's one that's uh, somewhat out of your control, but you can push, you can ask them to see their qualifications. You can write into your contracts, you know, mandatory security provisions, uh, but it's hard, right? It's hard managing uh, a vendor. Yeah. I would just say to that point, um, we're starting to see, you know, a further push from that, you know, if you're familiar with uh, the recent national cybersecurity strategy that's come out of the white house. A lot of the focus there, um, you know, I think rightfully so, you know, the way the White House is framed, and I was in D.C. two weeks ago, um, here and their their own color around the, the strategy or the priorities are, it's, you know, we see a problem, everyone sees a problem with the responsibility of cybersecurity currently being on the end users slash individual's shoulders, right? Oh, you're the problem. You clicked on the phishing link. Oh, you didn't configure this correctly. You're the problem. And so, you know, the government has seen that with this weight of responsibility being on individuals and small businesses 
one of the priorities is to start shifting that responsibility upstream. Um, and, and that's most likely going to look like, you know, heightened requirements for product vendors, you know, this concept of secure by design. Um, and so I think to Pete's point, you know, while an individual company, you maybe can't push GE or a large OEM to make major changes by yourself. I think, you know, as we saw with SIP 13 and supply chain, not everyone says, Hey, this is the standard we need as a bare minimum, just like we have safety in cars, right? You can't sell a car unless you meet bare minimum safety requirements. We're going to start to see the same regulation or requirements on the product side so that we're getting more secure products by design and making the end user's life more and the risk that comes along with using those products more manageable. Yeah. Let me add also um, the transfer uh, component of the risk management uh, program. Uh, it is not only about deploying technology or procuring or enabling services capabilities. Uh, but you have also the option to transfer uh, some of that risk and you need to understand what is the right thing to do every step on the way for which you need some kind of quantification engine. Uh, so let me advocate for, for risk quantification uh, that helps to understand when the right next step is deploying technology, when the right next step is training your team, when the night breath, excuse me, the right next step is procuring services from an MSSP, and when the most efficient next step is trying to transfer the risk to somebody who is in the business of buying that risk. So you need something, a risk quantification tool that helps you prioritize actions and measure the efficacy of the decisions made and implemented and uh, efficacy in terms of reduction of risk and, and clever use of the capital, human and uh, financial capital that is an scarce resource always in any enterprise. Wouldn't it be great if there's such product out there? We are trying hard to put it together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, brilliant. Well, I think that kind of rounds off our conversation quite nicely. So I think, I guess, to summarize, obviously, we, we've looked at where do companies start? You know, Donovan's talked us through the assessment piece, understanding what solutions, what vis visibility solutions are out there. Um, then we kind of move towards understanding the risk and how can we um, communicate that risk effectively. And lastly, we kind of ended with reducing risks. Is there anything anyone wanted to add or that they pretty, pretty exhausted, pretty feel like we've covered most things. I think I've got only, sorry, Pete, go first. I think I'm all set. I, I simply wanted to add that this is a journey and especially in these industrial environments where the deployment of any of the solutions that we have talked about is a multi-year project. Uh, so it's a journey and, uh, and, uh, I keep advocating for having visibility about the underlying risk through that journey. And a risk that, for better or worse, is dynamic and moves up and down, and most of the times against you, no matter how much effort you deploy to keep it under control. So, uh, uh, in our opinion, it's a data-driven uh, game. And uh, good news is that there is a lot of data out there. Uh, bad news is that it's not easy to put the data together and make sense out of it. But a lot of people is working on that, and uh, and we are getting closer to that uh, ideal scenario with the help of technology vendors uh, that Pete is representing today, 
and uh, and uh, an MSSPs represented by John that play an absolute critical role on the proper management of this risk, in my humble opinion. Perfect. So anyone listening here that uh, wants a bit more information on that, I'm sure you'd be happy for them to, to reach out to any of you and you can kind of steer them in the right direction then. Absolutely. Brilliant. Well, last thing from me is just want to say like a big thank you to all you. I really enjoyed, you know, facilitating hosting today's conversation. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it and I hope you all have too. And I hope to the listeners out there as well, it's been, it's been something interesting and thought provoking for them. So yeah, thank you guys. Really appreciate it.